I need you to go with this. Okay. How about this? In five, four, three. <laughs> this, is, this is where we need Periscope. I know. Yeah. You can just imagine oh, what's I forgot there. this is not a video podcast. So how goes it? How are you feeling? Because we almost didn't record today. I know. Uh, much better now. Well, this morning I thought I was sick. Should make this short because our last one was mega as someone described it. I know. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if that meant mega as in, you know, length or mega as in just sheer awesomeness. Let's go with awesomeness. I <laughs> know. I'm going to interpret that as I wish. Um, yeah, that was fun. I thought that was fun. Those are, I mean, they're fun for me, but I never know. Like, is this boring? Who knows? I think it's awesome. It's awesome. So does Leo. So we like, are, that's awesome. So does we, he. We, we are not alone today. That's true. We have a guest. It's not often we have a guest. <laughs> we we drug drug one of our buddies into the studio and said, "Hey, here's a mic. Talk." <laughs> uh, guest, would you like to introduce yourself? Um, <laughs> everyone, uh, this is Teddy Zemedy. I've uh, been uh, friends with John and Jeremy for about ten years now. God, it's so long ago. I can't. I can't believe yeah. that. Actually. Can you believe that? <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been wow. a long time. Yeah. And uh, they are doing this podcast, and uh, I am I am a good listener. I might not do every episode, but I do I do I do listen most of them. You're fairly devoted. That's good to know. Yeah, <laughs> casually devoted. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hopelessly devoted. <laughs> well, you haven't had much time because you just had a baby. Yeah, Your second. I did. I did. Yeah, that's no excuse. No sleep. He gets up, he gets up with his wife. Listen. Like me, I was like, I have to work. You're gonna have to get up and let me sleep. And yeah. he actually gets up with her and everything. They. But what is it? What is the procedure like? You feed your daughter a bottle, and your wife is is making more milk. Uh, used to be. <laughs> used to be. Has that changed? Yeah, it has changed now. Uh, I'm kind of as, as soon as you <laughs> as soon as you get comfortable with a parental procedure, then it must change. Yeah. yeah. Well, Just Teddy, you were making me look bad because you actually got up with your wife and <laughs> we used to take turns, but then it got to the point where I have to get up and work. Yeah. I, I we just have to. We have to agree that I need some sleep. Yep. Sleep is underrated for sure. Are you guys into design facts? Does that like stimulate you guys at all? And I kind of I, design and UI is kind of like a hobby of mine. So I like design consuming. facts, like truths yeah. about design. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Just random trivia. We'll say not um, facts. Yeah. I, I, I might be. So there's this application called Avocode. And what it is, it's an application that will take Photoshop and sketch files and um, take the layers and translate those into CSS or whatever, let you inspect everything. And so it's kind of one of those tools that's meant to bridge the gap between designers and um, developers. It's one of many tools that basically goes out there and takes all your Photoshop files and lets you turn them into code, CSS pages. Yeah. But anyways, um, they came out with this uh, 2015 year in design. And so they, of all the designs that were uploaded to their service, they broke out. Sorry, I'm fighting something here. They broke out, you know, kind of different pieces of trivia. And what I thought was interesting was Photoshop, the usage of Photoshop and Sketch, because I think you had mentioned to me before what I use, and I, I was saying that I use Sketch. And Sketch has actually gotten a lot more popular in recent years. Um, and it turns out that's very much true. So of their users, 50%, 57% are using Photoshop, 43% are using Sketch. 
More interesting than that, though, uh, the entire U.S. is pretty much the main percentage of that, and the European regions are still kind of using Photoshop. So I don't know if that's some kind of translation thing where maybe the app doesn't have the languages or just hasn't taken hold there, but at least in the U.S., Sketch is pretty much overtaken Photoshop. <clears throat> Could be because a lot of these overseas things are just these shops that will just take your, you know, PSD to HTML, right? These yeah. kind of low quality, but they'll do it for really cheap. And they're probably, that's their, the whole business has been around, is built around Photoshop to HTML and CSS. Maybe that's But there's no reason that Sketch couldn't be that as well. I mean, people design stuff in Sketch and you can translate that as well. But, um, well, they're, oh. just, they're just, you know, they're doing, they're serving a market need. And I'm sure if the market starts asking for Sketch to, I just, I don't know. That's, I don't think that's, well, first of all, there's a reason why you don't hear near as much talk about the designer developer workflow. And that's just because it's just blurred. It's blurred so much. If you're a front end developer, you better have some design chops. And if you're a front end designer, you better, you better have some, you better be able to take your design and, and not, not, you know, code up. Yeah, I mean, you have to have the ability to kind of take someone's design and understand how you're going to implement that yeah. in the most effective way. Because it's not always just, especially not to, not <clears throat> these days, sorry, is it's not so much taking an image and cutting it up into a sprite and displaying it. A lot of times we're looking to gain some efficiencies by maybe making it an SVG or something, you know, having it drawn real time, not necessarily stored as an image. Yeah. Especially it's when you come to... All these different devices with different screen sizes and resolutions you're trying to accommodate, you need something that's going to scale, and an image doesn't always scale very well. Right. And, you know, and, and designers should understand that type of thing just as much as developers do. And I, th and I think the good ones do. Um, it's just, it's a real gray area on, I mean, I think a lot of the, what the designer's doing as far as coding it up is, as HTML and CSS, a good front-end developer could, could do that well. And in fact probably should be some collaboration there because when it comes to things like, well, is it, should this be a ping or an, this could be an SVG or we plan on animating it. And so maybe it should be an SVG. I mean, those are, these are conversations that kind of span that those two roles. Um, and just, I don't know, I think the lines are blurred and you don't, you just yeah. don't hear near as much talk about that anymore. And I think, I think for good reason, I didn't, that, that conversation never seemed <laughs> like it always seemed, um, you know, that like the premise of the conversation was not really accurate to me. So about you, Teddy, how, are, how do you stand on the whole design thing? Are you more of just a back-end guy, or do you like to get your hands dirty with, with the UI? I would say uh, I, I'm more of a, a back-end guy. I, I don't dabble a lot with... Uh, he likes the back-ends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say that. Yeah. Well, some more useless trivia. Uh, the most used type was Open Sans followed by Helvetica, Roboto, Proxima Nova, and Source Sans Pro. What are those for? Uh, fonts. Fonts. And... Fonts that were used. I think I used most of those yeah. on various things. I mean, those are those are my favorites. In fact, my family style probably mimics that degradation that way. I think, the, aren't those also available from like Google font, Google uh, Yeah, like Roboto is, is the Android one. Uh, Proxima Nova, I believe. It's either Source, maybe Proxima Nova... Is the no because they what is what is Apple's new one because Helvetica was the one they San were Francisco? using San Francisco that's the new one so that didn't even make the list at least on this top five but Open Sans of course I mean anything anything you get where it's open source and readily available is is a big plus um, was Proxima Nova was that an Apple font I, I want to say it was and that was my hesitation was was whether or not it 
whether or not to call it an apple font. I wonder if that was like one that San Francisco was based on. I guess ba- if San Francisco was based on Helvetica, yeah. right? Helvetica Noia. Yeah. Really thin font. Rounded buttons ruled. So rounded corners. When did they rule? Just in, in their survey of okay. what they reviewed. It was 89% over 11% on squared buttons. And this one was interesting. The You know how you can set the border on something and you can set whether it's on the inside, outside, or center? Yeah. Um, inside... Yeah, out, inside was, was, and I think that's because it's default. That's what the default is for border is inside. And so it's 55% inside, 43% outside, and only 2% center. Hmm. Which is interesting. Yeah. That'll be on that. It's just some, some other weird facts. But those are the ones that caught my attention. <clears throat> for those that are interested in design stuff. What else we got? I wanted to talk about deploying flows. So I've come up with another reason why f- flows and process builder processes are just simply banned in any project I work on. You d- they're just not ready yet. And Salesforce likes to talk about, are we, is it okay for me to go into this now? Mm-hmm. Okay. Salesforce always talks about how their API, well, you hear I'm a moment. So not, well, okay, they're kind of schizophrenic. You never know what they're, what's first with them. Is it API first? Is it mobile first? Is it what? I mean, they always have different, it's, you know, whatever, whoever's talking or whatever, um, whatever, it, you know, wins the, T- the testing <laughs> right but um it's you know they're they're just not ready yet api wise so i was talking about this i'll try to explain this teddy have you ever deployed flows or i have so so flow like the what are they called visual flows or whatever yeah flows? Visual, so yeah, flows, flows and yeah. processes i mean i mean the process builder processes yep. they both actually boil down to flows right right in terms of metadata and if you've noticed, when you're, like, say you're building a process, every time you create a new version of it, you basically inactivate the, the yeah. old one, right? Yeah. And it creates a new version, which is the active one. And so if you look at the metadata for that, you might see, you know, myflow-1, myflow-2. Yeah. And if the current one is myflow-6, so you'll have myflow-1 through 5 are inactive, and then myflow-6 is the active one, right? And those are all end up, you know, as a part of your source tree. And... They would be, you know, in version control. And that's the thing that, are, you know, people will be part of deployments and continuous integration. Any developer that checks out is going to have those things. The problem is you just can't deploy them. Um, you can't deploy an active. So let's say you're in our case, like the my myflow-6 is your active one. Mm-hmm. If it's already there, you can't, it's not idempotent, meaning you, even though you haven't changed it, you, it can't be in your deployment package anymore. So it's like a one, and, and it's like you know you deploy it once, and then you got to remove it from your from your source. Yeah, but uh, go 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 back to explaining how your how your deployment process works because you're not using the the I'm not gonna, I'm going to say traditional, but the one most people use is if something's changed. ID. That's that's all I'm using. Let's use the Eclipse IDE, but right? That's you're, pretty you're traditional, not, right? Oh, okay, but you're choosing selectively which ones to deploy, and your your system is actually going through and looking at everything and pushing everything, isn't it? Okay, it doesn't matter. Let's let's say that you, um, let's say I, I you and I work on the same project. I've got a sandbox. You've got a sandbox. I create mm-hmm. a new flow, right? Well, how am I going to get get that to you? Well, I'm going to commit it into version control, right? And then you're going to check it out. And you're going to get it. And you're going to right click on it. And let's just say you do it the piecemeal. That's what you're saying. Piecemeal one at a time versus mm-hmm. the whole thing, right? Right. For, well, first of all, in that method, you've got to know what every time you check out new code, you've got to know what to. You, what do you, what, am I supposed to give instructions on an order of things to do? That's why that mo- whole model doesn't work. But anyway, let's say you did. You, de- you deploy that. 
or or what do you do when you want to deploy something? You know, you've been working on things for a month and you want to deploy these things to production. What do you do? You review your change log and build your package. Yeah, I hope you don't do that. <laughs> Anyone who does that should be taken out. And well, we'll, we'll talk about that because th- that I have done that and it's worked. And I and it wasn't ideal, but you know we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. Okay, so go back to what. But you're anyway, saying. you essentially they're, they're not identical. Like for example, you can take an Apex class and you can deploy that thing over and over and over. You don't have to yeah. work. Once it's already there, you can redeploy it. It's fine. You don't have to. Take and and it you're out saying of your, this meaning there's no changes to it. You're just kind of pushing it along with your package, right? Um, and that's where you're running into the pro- problem with flows because you're not changing it, but it's in the deployment package. Yeah, and compared to the way that all other metadata work, it just seems completely broken. Well, it was an acquisition, so it wasn't part of the native and the way, flow. And, and the way that you, then the way that you change flows works differently than any other uh, any other yeah. thing in Salesforce. And so all the tooling just doesn't work. The API essentially doesn't work. I mean, I consider it broken. Yeah, uh, I think if you have your flow um, deactivated in your destination, or you can push that. I don't out. think you can. Well, it has the I constraint of that. having yeah. the unique name and version, I believe. Here's the message you get. Once a flow has been activated, it can never be updated. And you, even if it's, right, that you're basically cloning it and creating a new version. Every time, every time you modify, you have to clone it and create a new version. Of right, it. right. And I, I'm trying to remember because it's been a while, but I'm trying to remember if it forces you to change the name along with the version, or if it's just the name itself, or if it's there's just a name change or a version change. But they, but they put the versions in the name of the thing of the metadata. Like so now, now the now your metadata names become what's the they they have what's the word um their um semantic I mean basically you're embedding semantics in the, into the name of your metadata item. It's my it's literally my flow dash one. Not that you want to have that dash one. You have to have the dash one in yeah. the name of the thing. Yeah. And so when you're going to deploy that to an org, well, you have to know which versions you you can't just deploy that to an org, right? Because you've, you, you've got to know which version. You can't like override another version that's there. Like if you want to create a new version of it, well, you've got to figure out, well, what was the most recent version in the org I'm deploying to? Oh, it was 11? Well, that means I have to rename my metadata to my thing-12, right? Right. Yeah. It's, just, it's just an absolute disaster. Yeah, you can't. They just yeah. did not plan this or, well at all. Yeah, it would be very difficult to automate uh, pushing out. Exactly. And, you and you, have, think, you have to write some kind of really yeah. crazy custom tooling yeah. to automate this. It might be something that would be improved in the future, right? If you remember for even classes, right? If you have a scheduled job on a class, we used to be not being able to deploy classes, but now there's an option where you can say, even if there's a scheduled job, go out out and override it. So something like that. Unfortunately, it'll it'll be tough for them with this because they've already put this out there as the way this thing works, right? So if they want to change the way you deploy flows, it will... Any any way that you were, were already deploying them, it's going to break that. And so, I, I guess I guess what they I don't ha- know because I mean if if it happens in the backside of things where that constraint isn't there and it goes ahead and allows you to override it, then you wouldn't change how you're deploying it. No, I mean if they decided to say okay, not not embed the semantics into the name of the thing and all that kind of stuff. Mm. I mean it would change everything. Uh, of course, they could do that because Salesforce versions their APIs in a pretty good way, right? Yeah, actually, it's pretty awesome the way they they're really good at versioning APIs. They could just, on the next, whatever, some future version of the metadata API, they could change the way that works. And that'd be fine. As long as, you know, my version 34 doesn't break or whatever, right. I'm okay with that. Yeah. But beyond beyond the deployment issue, right? So flows have this big issue with order of execution. So 
on on this specific project right now where I'm working, we have a couple of different flows on the same object and uh, we you can't predict what the order of execution and things don't work as expected most of the time. Mm-hmm. So we are just pulling out flows and just putting them in, uh, putting the logic in, in trigger where you can control what happens uh, in order, right? So, Wait, say this again. So you're, you're taking what were flows and just re-implementing them as triggers? As triggers, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think, I think they've got they've got work to do. I think processes are kind of cool. I mean, I sit I sit around and I've, I've watched people who are not developers build some pretty nice functionality and flows that you wouldn't be otherwise be able to do. It's 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 certainly an improvement on the the workflow model. I think right. it's just more it's more um, I don't know it's more capable, but it's just not it's just not ready for for any decently sized org where. You are actually using sandboxes, and you know you've got a significant amount I think, of customization. Yeah, if it is limited to an org where you don't have any code, uh, but you want to give your administrators greater power <coughs> to do more things, then it might be good. Uh, yeah, you just have flows. Right. That's it. Right. <laughs> it's just for yeah. For most of the projects I worked on, it's it's something that we just can't really use yet because it just it throws a wrench into our gears. Yeah, I, I think from from a. Because we're coming at it from a developer's perspective and the type of customizations we do and we're able to do and the amount of fine grain control we're able to have because code is far more expressive than point-and-click tools can be, at least without an immense amount of complication. And you can look to any Microsoft tool to understand that. Yeah. But um, so from that perspective, admins tend to like them. They tend to like flows. They tend to like Process Builder because they are able to kind of point-and-click their way into doing some really interesting things. Um. But for us, th- there's that conflict because the two tools are not compatible. You know, a lot of times the things we're doing are not compatible with, with the way flows are working or the triggering mechanisms and the orchestrations of how what gets fired when and all those kind of things. Yeah. You know, order of execution, all those things come into play. And you, sometimes it does come down to the point where you're just saying, I know you did those, all this in process builder and flows, but if you want to fix this issue, we're going to have to take all that out and put yeah. it into a trigger. And it's just it's the it's a double edged sword. I mean, it's like you said, it's 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 good that they can do these things, but the reality is, is they people like say a typical admin who may be doing flows in, in the situation you're talking about, they truly do not understand what they're doing in terms of how it's affecting all the other stuff, right? They don't have a full understanding of this. Of you know, but isn't that the luxury of point and click tools that you sh- that you're you don't necessarily have to understand it that if the tool lets you do it it should be a good thing except that it's not hap- it's not you're not using that point and click tool in complete isolation right you're, right and i'm just saying from from a, from a general yeah. perspective a theoretical perspective right. as you put it is you know this is the tool that the system provides for me to modify and implement this logic why is it when i implement it it's causing all this havoc and it's i think just from a uh, i don't know I wish I could come up with a better term than this, but like from a best practice perspective or just, you know, how you can get stuff done. Um, we, I don't think we have good conventions around when you, when you do use some point and click tool, for example, you, it would not be acceptable for someone to go write a bunch of triggers at apex and just not test them at all. Right. That's just not smart. I mean, even if the system does let you, <clears throat> Right, even if you're already over that arbitrary seventy-five percent of test coverage, right, it's just a bad idea, right? I mean, you don't really know if it works, and if it does, you don't know why it works, and if it ever stops working in the future, you're not gonna you're not gonna know it until it fails at runtime in production, right? 
But why, so why is it okay for people to go create a flow or a process in production and not do, and not have any kind of that type of testing? Well, it, it doesn't think, make sense, right? I think it's, the community is learning that. I've, I've listened to some other podcasts that have, you know, that are from the admin perspective and they talk about flows and they talk about process builder and they talk about the need to embrace sandboxes. Whereas many before have said, I didn't know under, what a sandbox was. I didn't understand it until I really screwed up my production environment. And then I realized I need to do this in a sandbox first. Right. Because you're basically creating, you're creating code when you, mm-hmm. when you create a process. Or even, but even then getting in the practice of doing your modifications in an environment where if you screw up, it's not that big a deal versus going into production, deleting a field and accidentally deleting the wrong one or right. some other catastrophic event where you've actually modified or gotten rid of data. Yeah. And, 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 and in a sandbox, you can make your, you can create your process and then you can run all tests as a mm-hmm. uh, regression check to see if you've broken anything else. Because, I mean, you don't know whether you broke... Your process may work just fine. But you yeah. don't know what you may have broken until you run your whole test, like your entire test suite. And hopefully you have good tests. That's, why you, that's one reason why you should have good tests, is so you can make changes with confidence. Yeah. And if you so, don't have a good test suite, then people are scared. That's when people get scared to change anything in the system. Everyone's scared to create a custom field or even make some minor change to some Apex class because they're not sure where it's used and how it's... You know, there's not a, if there's not a good regression test suite, then you don't you have you have any you don't you don't have any confidence, and you shouldn't. Well, that was one thing I appreciated about the level of bureaucracy around this big enterprise customer or client or I worked for company <laughs> because they were under um, SOX compliance. So with that, none of the developers were allowed to have production access. And really, no changes were supposed to occur in production. So everything we did, including field creation and page layout changes, all those things that, that seem minuscule or innocent or, you know, have very little impact or risk, still had to be done mm-hmm. in that dev environment and pushed forward. So it was a very easy – well, it wasn't very easy. It was easy to convince others because it was a mandatory requirement yeah. that, no, don't do that in production. Do it in the sandbox, and then we'll test everything and make sure everything works as expected. Right. And if, and if they used – in that case, if they're using socks as a lever to drive some, some good changes, I'm all for that. However, man, there was so much overreaction to socks. People that didn't yeah. – hadn't actually read the regulation and didn't understand. Like, I saw some – I'm like, wow, I see people – <laughs> that think they have to do things that you actually don't have to do. And I'm like, that's not socks. Why are they doing that? No, they think it's <laughs> socks, com- you know. Right. So we're talking about Sarbanes Oxley, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so to along those lines, what do you guys do on the conversation of it's a brand new instance and it, it, it's just being set up for the first time? Do you do your modifications in production? No, never. And then create your sandbox? The very, or do you the create very, your sandbox, modify, and then deploy? The very first thing I do is, you know, create my sandbox, initialize a Git repository, commit in the org as it exists, as the initial commit, and start and probably set up a continuous integration with a build sandbox, probably a QA sandbox, and then some automated push to production. You know, a, a one button click push to production. That sounds really complicated to get an org set up. If you've never done it, probably, but it's... <laughs> For me, it's, you know, once you've, it's one of those things, once you've done it once, it's, a lot of it is, 
a lot of it is just copy and paste. And yeah. Can, mm-hmm. I, I encourage the same thing. I think it, it literally I takes, think me, setting, it takes me a couple of hours to set all that. I up. mean, even though production doesn't have any real production data, no users are actually using it. I think it's good to at least set the foundation to say, Hey, this is how we do things. This is how we move it from this org to from this state to this state. Because I mean, otherwise you're kind of creating that expectation that there are some things that are okay to change in production and that there's, you know, there's some leeway there when yeah. really I don't think there should be. Again, you don't know, you don't know what you're breaking if you're changing stuff in production. Yeah, but right. at this point, you, there's nothing to break. Oh, that's true. No, I, and I so it's, it's kind of one of those conversations that has to happen, and, and it's a it's a mindset change for those people that are used to just going in and just start doing stuff. Yeah, I mean the thing is, like you have you don't have to have sandbox anyway if you're doing right apex and yeah. code. Yep. So you you have to you have to have a sandbox if you're making changes in production. Now you have the problem of how you're going to get those changes back to your sandbox. You're going to refresh all the time. Yeah, I almost never have to refresh sandboxes. Almost never. That's because you're a crazy person. The only time I do is if I if, with full sandboxes to get the latest full copy of the data for you know for full regression testing or full like you know QA. Yeah, testing. I would say you know the need to refresh your sandbox is a bit of a smell. It says it that, is a smell. That it's, it says you're that right. things were done in production that were not done in these these other environments or at least not done in a way to where those changes Flow. propagate yep. properly. Right. That you know you've got an issue. Yeah, I, I would say, yeah, I would say the same. But uh, also, right, uh, sometimes the data you have in your sandbox might be stale and it might cause you some unnecessary headaches during testing and things like that. For those kinds of things, I think, yeah, you might not need to refresh the sandbox, but uh, wiping out all test data from your uh, sandbox and reinserting it or repopulating it might might work i think yeah you don't have to do that's a good point i mean for full sandbox environments sometimes it's good to kind of get a refresh especially if you're trying to reproduce an error i mean that was one thing we did try to do is if we just could not reproduce an error we try to get a full sandbox refresh so we can sometimes the cause of a bug is just the still data and you are just wasting time right that one then that was my exception is full sandboxes those you know refresh every you know once a month or so i think that's Unfortunately, I hate the fact that it's so expensive to get a full sandbox, <laughs> that it just costs so much because really, I mean, if you want to have a full kind of, you know, your developers, your QA, your staging, whatever, whatever process you set up, you really kind of want them to be equal and of equal yeah. parts. Hey, this is the, this is the cost of enterprise using enterprise software in the cloud. You're going to pay for it. Yeah. Right? I, I, I mean, it's still t- th- theoretically <laughs> cheaper, right? We've all bought into that hook, line and sinker. It's cheaper. So quit complaining about your false sandbox. Step up and pay for it. You know, you your organization decided to go with with a inter, enterprise software vendor in the cloud. It's just part of the, you know, you certainly you would have a, a, a if you were using an on-premise system, you'd have a, a te, you know, like a, what do you call it? A staging instance or some kind of QA instance or something. Yeah, but there's a difference between that one-time hit of hardware for each environment you're trying to set up versus the ongoing expense of, of a sandbox. If you want to have, you know, a full sandbox for your staging, a full sandbox for your QA and testing and a full sandbox for your developers, that that's really expensive. But John, it's cheap. It's cheaper than on, than on-premise software. That's what we've been told. Uh, I'm not sure about the details, but I think recently I've heard about some change around what kind of sandboxes, how many sandboxes you get for each of <clears throat> You're getting the, more the developer sandboxes. Yeah, you're you getting this next more. Release, I think, but, yeah. I mean, that doesn't solve the problem of that. Should be have, I, that should be unlimited. Why is a developer sandbox? Why is there any limit to developer sandboxes? I don't know. There's, I mean, there's a. That's like a limiting a developer org. I mean, why you can create as many as you need. You should. I mean, they're they're free. 
They don't cost anything. It's just it's just a few extra zeros and ones. It's not like it's gigabytes of data. I mean, that is true. I mean, it, they are extremely limited. So, I mean, what damage could you do? And, and you still have to manually. Is there an automate? Is there an API, by the way, for creating? This is one of my pet peeves. There's not an API for actually creating for man, in, you know managing sandboxes, right? So it can't be automated. I don't think there is. I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think there would be because <clears throat> they, that would well, open need, it up. Yeah. No, this is a, this is a huge shortcoming. I mean, this is why they are never going to be in line with a Heroku or AWS or anything until they until they because they're not elastic. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I got to get that on the soundboard, man. But I mean, I mean that is that is one of the nice things about Heroku is if you need another environment, you just spin one up and clone your other environment and there you go you're up and running on a new environment and then as soon as you don't need it you can get rid of it you know because your your usage model is different it's not these user based subscriptions maybe maybe that's what they should do with sandboxes is base it on usage instead of on user count mm, maybe yeah. make it transactional based so right. i mean because it is more of a development environment than it is you know front end <clears throat> users i don't know that, this this is the thing with cloud they're going to they're going to want to nick on dime you for Every little thing, everything oh, they fast add. Fastest to ten billion. I know. When they, you know, they've got these new additions, right? They're basically new, new versions of professional enterprise mm-hmm. and unlimited. And you know, they're going to, of course, they're. You do get more with them, and I, overall, I guess that's a good thing. But they're more expensive, and you know, they're going to phase the old ones out. I promise you, starting now or as soon as these things are actually available, the Salesforce sales reps will not want to sell you a non-lightning um, edition of Salesforce. I'm sure it'll be, it'll be like pulling to you'll have to get you know you'll have to go over their head to their boss's boss or something to get sign off to get to get a non lightning edition they're not going to want to sell those well we're on that topic i had had an article that i read was a couple of days ago and i was telling you about that the that salesforce is disclosed and this was ben zinga i've never really visited the site but it came up in my news feed but salesforce is, has disclosed a 10 to 20 percent increase in the per user per month price points for three editions of the new sales cloud and service cloud platform and I'm assuming by the new editions, they're talking about those lightning editions. Right. So they're going to cost you 10 to 20% more. And another interesting fact, and it, this is stated right after it, is the company is also raising the prices for recently acquired steel brick by 30 to 75%. Yeah. Oh, you locked your steel brick, didn't you? You did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you said, you're going to pay up. S- software in the cloud. Well, God damn it. You know, it's a fucking cloud. <laughs> I don't know why I play that clip because I always have to. It, it was great to, to work for to me. It. I know. You should pre-edit it. I know I should, but then it's not as fun for me. <clears throat> I want to hear the real thing. So we had an interesting conversation the other day, and it's actually around deployments, and it was a question Teddy had. So, Teddy, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to recreate the scenario for us. What was your question that you had asked us? Yeah, the, the question I had was about version control, and uh, when it comes to... Um, Apex code, right? Uh, tr- classes, triggers, visual force pages, components. Uh, it is usually done by developers who use IDEs, and uh, it might be easier for those kind of folks to uh, version this, uh, commit them to repositories, and things like that. But I was really wondering how can you manage uh, configuration changes? It has to be part of your deployment package because uh, when you deploy out uh, Apex uh, code, you have to go with the configuration as well. So how do you version that? Who's going to maintain that? Who's going to commit that to a repository? So that was my, my challenge that I had. And I think, I think Jeremy has one of the better answers to it, but I'm going to answer my way because my way is the wrong way. And it was the wrong way because of the politics I was dealing with. 
And that was exactly what we were talking about earlier is we had a, we had a spreadsheet and everyone listed every little change they made to the system. Wow. Hang on, hang on, hang on, (laughs) hang on, hang on. Oh, oh, I got a ding in it. It's because I fat fingered. Was that kind of right and wrong? It was on the edge or? No, it's. You lose. As soon as you say spreadsheet, you lose. <laughs> there, there was a committee around what oh. features would get deployed. Now, hold on. There was a committee, and, but but then the team itself that was responsible for delivery then looked, reviewed that spreadsheet, figured out what was actually going to be in that build, and we we had a specific team for release management, so they had to know exactly what to create in this package, and so they would go through and figure out. We'd all together figure out okay, what needs to be a pre-deployment manual activity? What's deployment if there's if we have to have to split the deployment up for various reasons and any kind of post manual activities. So we basically had to sit down and orchestrate all that. Uh, I can tell you it took a lot of time, effort, and diligence to maintain the spreadsheet, make sure everyone was doing it right. And then to have those meetings and those, those, like those meetings and those discussions around how we're going to get this to production. And so obviously (laughs) I'm getting a bunch of blank stares and, uh, a little shake in the head of that's not the right way. Well, but I mean, it, it was something we had to do and it did work, but it only worked because everyone in the process understood why we were doing it that way. And they were full on board. I've so, been in other situations. And, and where what, what happened to most of those, those people that worked there on that team, John, what happened to their jobs? Oh, they're all gone. Yeah. But that's for other reasons. That's mm, for, it's related. How? If those people would have been much more efficient, they would have been using a system, a, an actual enterprise system with, in normal features you'd expect from a right, you guys heard it here first a, jeremy's process will save your job n- well no <laughs> wait i mean i don't know i might give you a fighting chance but all right um i wouldn't i wouldn't want to be so con- mine was the worst case scenario yeah. so well actually no mine's not the worst case scenario mine's a well, valid attempt at the scenario a worst case is just not to do anything and do everything in production but i mean and mine's very opinionated i mean i've just i've tried it so many different ways and just based on my experience and what i know the capabilities and limitations of the things we're working with are I, this is just to me it's like for any you know non-trivial org um this this there's really only one way to do it um and there's a lot of facets to it i mean i guess it starts with obviously you're using sand you got to use sandboxes um each developer if there's multiple developers each developer's got to have their own sandbox which i i've tried in the past and i always found problematic and i'm hoping you have the Okay, well, well let that. me ask you let me ha- let me ask you how you handle something like that. So let's say you and I are sharing a sandbox, right? Okay. And I do a git pull and pull down the latest source version the, the latest version of everything to to my local hard drive, okay? Now I've now I've got to get that into my org so that my org and my thing match. So I do a deploy, deploy that to to my sandbox. By the way, which is the same sandbox you're sharing. And now I just step all over your toes. You have no idea why nothing's compiling, nothing's working. You are now overriding what's in the org with old versions of stuff because you didn't get it. How do you handle this? Well, we at, using the scenario that I described earlier, we didn't because we weren't using version control. Okay. Well, you don't even that doesn't even qualify <laughs> for the conversation then. I I think your scenario, Jeremy. <laughs> Uh, once you pull down from your repository, if you do a, a synchronize yes. the server and right. find out if things have changed, that, that might help a, a bit if you are working in a single sandbox. And again, I, I was well, working but with... The, but the people have... The, yeah, you, there, there's still all kinds of problems with that. You'd have to know to do that, right? Yeah, you have like, to, and to you, do that. And you yeah. basically, at, at any given point in time, your sandbox could essentially be trashed. 
because of what someone else did to it. it. I mean, it means someone has to manage that process, that cycle, and take ownership of it. It will with, not work. It will fail. I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, sure, you could say if, if, if. Well, if I always asked if I needed to do something, if I always, you know. Sometimes, I mean, the driving factor. If I always ran a synchronizer. I'll say in my scenario, the driving factor was me. I was the one dictating this. I was the one saying this is how it had to be. I was the one empowered to say, well, I can't have version control because the company's using this Visual Studio team stuff and I can't get access to Git or no one wants to pay for it. That can get so expensive. <laughs> yeah, it's bureaucracy, bureaucracy, bureaucracy. You had to justify. I had to. We had to justify using jQuery in a damn web page. Come on, that's probably not a bad policy, actually. It, it, <laughs> I guess for all intents and purposes, it probably was. Um, but I knew what I was doing. Damn it! And no, don't question me. Is what I'm saying. For all intensive purposes, intense and per. <laughs> I'm just intense. What did I say? I said no. You said the right purpose. thing. I just okay. <laughs> Um, just wondering yeah, maybe so, you, you've, so everyone has to have separate sandboxes. Um, you have to be using version control. Um, and really, I think you've got to be pulling down as much metadata as you can and be, keeping under version control. And the reason is because you just don't realize how interconnected all these different metadata types are, right? Um, and what, cause what'll happen is you'll say, Oh, you know what? We'll just, we're just going to keep the developer type stuff under version control classes, um, resources, pages. Yes. Right. But then, you know, you're, what's going to happen is you're going to have just loads of ongoing deployment failures. Your deployments are going to be a mess. You know, you're going to be, in, you're going to end up being in this rut of weekend deployments because no one trusts it and they always you know, go wrong. You know, the orgs I work on, I mean, we've got, you know, hundred, you know, 200 plus thousand lines of code, um, you know, really massive things. And, and the deployments, we do deployments every week and it's automated and they hardly ever go wrong, which given Salesforce and the technology we're dealing with is I think a pretty, pretty good accomplishment. Yeah. I mean, they're almost just boring. They just always, always but in work. your process, you can ask, you can actually catch some of those issues <clears throat> early on as well. Can't well, you? Well, that's part of the whole point. Yeah. Because I, I, I mean, I've worked with you on some of these and, and, you know, trying to get it to that QA environment or that staging environment, whatever it ends up being called, it should match what production is currently. So it's almost like your mock deployment, but you're trying to get it to a point where people who need to test and make sure this works in production are, is working in an environment that matches production. Right. With your changes added on. Yeah. And so it's that deployment to that environment where you go, oh, something happened here. We have to account for this. And even that's fairly rare. But yeah, when we, like if I, because before we go to production, we always go to a QA instance first. And like so, the flow issue. And that you, will, you didn't, did you catch that going to production? Or did you catch that going to QA? That, I caught that in my developer. I mean, just can't, I couldn't do anything with mm. the flow. But yeah, you will catch, sometimes you will catch things going to QA that you're, you know, you're, makes you glad you do a, have a QA step. But you get, I mean, in your process, you get to make changes. You don't really care. You're not really keeping track of them. You're not having to log them. You're not having to take time to review them and figure out how you're going to get these deployed because you're deploying the entire metadata. Yeah, you're de- deploying, and, including even things like profiles, right? Because think about it. Um, let's say you've got a, I mean, there's so many things that have reference profiles. I mean, let's say you've got a community. Well, communities reference profiles. So if you're going to deploy anything related to communities, you better de- be deploying profiles as well because if not, then when you deploy something, if it references a profile that's not there, well, what are you going to do? Now, is this part of your, again, your manual? You're going to have a bunch of manual steps? No, just include it. In the, it's it's metadata. I mean, there's a reason why it's available as metadata. Yeah. And these things are, like I said, they're just all interrelated. I mean, profiles reference 
you know, fields and, you know, of course, Apex and workflows, they all reference, you know, fields and some and layouts reference other things. It's like it's just it's just this big um, kind of dependency spaghetti map. Right. And don't don't even try to make sense of it in, in terms of like, well, we probably don't have to deploy, you know, workflow if we, you know, whatever, you know, because don't, don't even just track everything you can possibly can. And so there's some things that you may not want to track. I mean, there's actually situations where a client where we really don't track profiles that much. And it's because they really need the ability to edit profiles in production, which I don't necessarily agree with, but that's where we are right now. Um, so when they, so when you do make a change to something in production, which is again, very rare, should be very rare, but we actually have a process for getting that back into, so we'll actually do a hot fix branch mm-hmm. in Git. We'll capture that change. And then that gets integrated back into any existing dev or QA branches that are or like a release branch that's happening so that it's, it's tracked. Right. And it's, cause if not, then what happens is that, <laughs> cause this has happened. If someone makes a change in production and we don't know about it, or we don't capture it. The next time we deploy to production, that change just goes away. <laughs> it gets completely undone because we do full deploys. So are you including reports in that as well? You can. You certainly can. Because, I mean, if, if anything has broken my deployment process, it's been a massive amount of reports. The package is too big. Oh, package is too big? Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge problem. And that's something that, man, Salesforce needs to fix. Yeah. Because um, then you get into situations where you actually have a configuration, like your org, that can't be deployed. Mm-hmm. Because it, then you have to figure out, well, how do I split this thing up? And by the way, there's no tooling that will do this for you. You you are now out of the realm of any kind of automated builds, automated deployment, continuous integration, any kind of you know modern best development and, and deployment practice you you can't do anymore. Um, and it's also even if even just manually splitting that up can be difficult. Now now you are you know decomposing this dependency graph and figuring out okay how can we split it up. You know, because reports don't just exist on their own. Things reference reports. Right. And so, you know, if you, if. Although, I mean, most of the references to reports are fa- fairly loose. I mean, it's, it's a URL, URL reference at times at best. It's not a hard dependency. Yeah. That's, it's that, the whole report thing is a little bit of red I mean, herring. So that right? kind of helps because you can <clears throat> actually split off your reports from, yeah. into a different package and have some success. But that's just one example of but, where the, pa- the metadata size could could be impacted. Yeah, it could that, be other things that impact it. Right. I mean, I've seen situations where you have to split up a lot more than just reports. And that's, you know, again, this becomes, it's almost like, you know, I say being a good Salesforce developer is almost like being a, a good a governor limit engineer. I mean, so much of your time and effort is spent on governor limit engineering. Yeah. And now it's the same thing with these deployments. Like you have to have a almost a, deploy, a dedicated deployment engineer who just can write custom tooling i don't know you know there's no good answer and you know what here's the thing that's frustrating to me about this you know salesforce's engineering you know r&d whatever they call them they would never they would never accept tooling like this yeah they get to use some of the best tooling there is right but their customers don't yeah. that's just an ongoing frustration for me well, our customers end up paying for our time for that inefficiency yeah. because I, I do estimate it. I, you have to. You have to estimate the time it's going to take to manage that deployment right. process. But anyway, let's the, that. Yeah, you, the the best thing to do is try to avoid. I think it's it's a four hundred megabyte limit. Your package can't be more than four hundred megabytes. So I think I think you spoke to the kind of the preferred best practice path to use that word. Well, I don't I think I, I don't, I don't think it. I finished the description of 
of how to do this. So we talked okay. about so each developer gets their own sandboxes. <clears throat> um, I mean, there's just there's all kinds of little things you should know. So um, again, configuration should be you know all, as much configuration as possible should all just be um, captured as metadata and part of, and committed into version control, so that when Teddy's working on some new feature and he has to create a new a new field and update a, a workflow and also add a new Visual Force page and Apex class. He can just commit all that into the, into the repository, and then, you know, next time I'm done with my whatever feature I push up and I'm ready to pull down the latest code, I pull it down, and I just do a full deploy to my sandbox, and I've got everything that his feature needed that he worked on. I don't have so to say, you oh, deploy it to you. This, this requires some field that I, you don't have. What, what was that field called? What did you call that field? And what was, the, what was the max length on it so I can just manually? I mean, that's just, this is terrible, right? Yeah. So don't get into that situation. Yeah, I, I think that works, Jeremy. But yeah, what that means is uh, you have to maintain a lot, a lot more metadata in your projects, right? You typically, when you set up a Salesforce project, you might just pick the things which are applicable to Apex development, right? Yeah. Just classes and triggers. But in this approach, you have to have everything, pretty yes. much. Objects, as much layout, as possible. Yeah. As much I have as possible. cases where I, because the metadata was so big, I wasn't able to actually out, yeah. get Eclipse to download all it the times metadata. Out, yeah, sometimes it times out. But that's now, I, th- I think you have... The advantage of custom tooling, because I think you interact with the ant scripts and everything else directly, don't you? To pull yeah, and I don't think those timeout. Those I'm, don't timeout. But when you're using like tools like Eclipse and Mavens and everything else, you will run into those timeouts, and there's really no escape key for that. Right. So you end up having That's, to get into more lower level stuff. You have to kind of start using these some of these tools directly versus using the nice features that some of these other tools provide. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, you do. I mean, you do have to. I mean, I guess you could. I mean, there's a somewhat of a downside to that. I guess it's more hard drive space or something. But I mean, overall, it's just it's going to save you so much time. No, I don't think anybody's totally complaining about it. hard drive space. Well, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to figure out like what's the negative of that. What's the negative of just tracking all metadata? Yeah, there, there, there isn't any issue. So I, that I think, would cover. I think that would cover us, right? Yeah. Though, for my question, that would cover us for anything. Um, an Apex code has to do with other other configuration, right? If if you are creating a, a field as, as part of a solution, if you track that, you're good. If you are uh, modifying a page layout as part of your solution, you track that, that's good. Yep. But how about those parts of the solution, right? Uh, a solution team is usually composed of developers and administrators. There are those parts of the team members <coughs> where their only job is to do just configuration. Yeah. How do you manage that configuration coming into your workflow right. and your repository. And that, that was really your main question, yeah. right? That was the thing you're struggling. I mean, there's a, okay, I'm, I'll address that, but I want to finish describing. So, because there's a, just a couple of gotcha scenarios that you really kind of need to know about um, or this won't work very well. Or you'll, you'll screw it up a few times like I've done and then you get to where you just really, you don't, you stop you screwing up. No, no. <laughs> you just, you, you, you realize it's a process you need to follow. Just do it in production. I don't <laughs> care anymore. And that is, think about the case where, let's say I, I finish a feature, I push it up, but before, but when I go to push it up, I get a, the error message. Forget that says, "Hey, you know, you you're not on the ahead of the branch anymore because someone else has pushed commits." Yeah. So now you either have to merge your commits into into whatever the now the head of whatever the branch is, or you can rebase. Right. Rebase, and, and yeah. In either case, you are now uh, merging in other people's changes into yours on your hard drive. Right. Okay. So let's say that you do that, and then you push that up, and you're good. Right. You've merged. And now you push your latest commit up, and then you start working on the next feature. And you are, you know, you create an Apex class, and let's say you also need to create a new field in your sandbox. You create a new field through the UI, but then you pull that metadata down, right, through using whatever your tooling is, Eclipse or whatever. 
because you need that field metadata you created. Well, what happens also now is <laughs> you just overwrote the previous guy's changes you merged in because you forgot after you merged or rebased to then push that merged to your developer. Yeah, develop and I've forgotten yeah. that many times. I don't, you know, I rarely forget anymore. But that's a huge pain because it, it gets difficult to tease out like what were your changes, what were their changes, and what should the merged product be. Yeah. So yeah, anytime you merge or rebase, you immediately push that to your, the of course, now the, the, yeah. the flip side of this is any any change you've made in your org, you've already, you already should have pulled that down, right? Now, because I just finished a feature, I probably already, I mean, that's one of the last things I do, right? Is I'll, let's say I need to, I do some config through the UI in Salesforce. I also create some things locally, Apex classes or whatever, and push those up. Because I've already, because any, as I'm creating Apex and Visual Force, it's getting all pushed automatically to my sandbox just because of, I'm using Mavens or Eclipse mm-hmm. or whatever. I'm good there. I just need the changes that I did through the UI in Salesforce. So I just do a full pull of all the met- metadata down to my, uh, down to my local file system, and then I can commit that. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, to that, I, I, it's it's almost like. How many people listening to this podcast, raise your hand wherever you're at, <laughs> if you didn't understand any of that? Rebasing, head of the branch, push, deploy, all those kinds of things. I think that's the challenge that that speaks to his to Teddy's question is that Well, if you don't know what a pipe wrench is, you probably shouldn't be a plumber. True. But now we're now we're saying that this is the right way to do this. And now we're asking No, I'm ad- sa- what I'm saying is if you are doing if you're building significant stuff in your org, you need to have the right tools and the right skill sets involved. I, I agree. If not, you're just it's gonna be miserable. You're gonna fail, it's you're a, not gonna hit your deadlines. It's a change it's gonna... to the standard makeup of a project team. And that that project team is made what, up of people what, who whose whose standard are you referring to? The standard that exists today. Of the people that I interact with of the of the well, over is, the that ten not, years that I've been doing this. That's your standard, not my standard. Come on, how, how many how many of the people you've worked with all understood Git? How many of them all understood oh, no, there, how to do pushes, there are, there are, Gits, and, and set up different sandboxes and understood the concept of doing everything in a sandbox? There are people on on the project teams I'm working on now that don't understand Git. So let me go back to your question, Teddy, and I'll address both of those things. Which is, you okay? Let's say you're doing all this right, right? You're doing what I'm describing, and I say right in air quotes because. My right doesn't <laughs> is not necessarily universal. You know, everyone's Jeremy's got not always ways. right in the head. <clears throat> um, but so you've got someone. Um, let's say they're a, you know, um, what do you call them? Salesforce expert, professional consultant, whatever. Right? They're app, but builders. they're not. They're not. Co- yeah, they're app builders. They're not. But they're not necessarily. They're not programmers. They're not developers. Right. They, they're not software engineers. They don't. They didn't. They don't have a computer science degree. They may know a little bit about Git, and maybe they even have some Git GUI thing that they can use to look at commits or something, but they're not, you know, when it gets into I like... I say like that. I use a Git client. When it gets into, you know, managing branches and, and merges and all kinds of things, you know, that's probably... Let's just say for that for this person, it's that's that's out of outside of their skill set. So how do you... How do they participate in this? They need to do some... They need to create some reports. They need to create some custom fields. They need to modify pro, profiles. All these, right? Layouts, that's a big one, right? Yeah. Because I'm not... I probably don't create the best layouts in the world. People always want to change my layouts. Okay, fine. Yeah, so. Change my layouts. You need, um, you need to have Shell Black teach you how to do page layouts. He doesn't yeah, probably the best so. Way. I need to. I need to catch up on my whiteboard. Yeah, <laughs> you do. Um, shellblack.com. dot <laughs> <laughs> ching checks in the mail. <laughs> um, so what you do is you set up the I call it like a config sandbox or an admin sandbox, 
And it's a place where they can go in and they can make these changes, right? And the rule is, hey, when you're done making your changes, make a change set for me because they usually know how to make a change set, right? And push it to my sandbox or one of the other developer sandbox, anyone who is on this Git train, right? So you're you're kind of the owner of this process. So they're feeding you. What no one you owns need. it. No, there's no owner. But they, you just said they're putting a chain set into your environment. They're pushing it to any, 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 oh, okay. anyone who can. Yeah. Okay, they're, they're creating a chain set, and they're making it available. Every, everyone's sandboxes are connected, all their developer sandboxes. So they're able to, but they only push it to one. They right? only push it to one. They only push it to one. Because, again, getting this into your sandbox needs to be something that each each person who owns a sandbox should be able to do on their own time when they're ready. Because if not. So you, if you get hit by a bus, who do they push it to? Another another developer another or another person who's got the Git skills that can that can do this. Um, but yeah, they push it to your sandbox. And then as, you know, let's say they push it to mine. Okay. If I'm in the middle of feature or working on something and I've got, you know, I'm pushing thing. I'm also pushing things to my sandbox. I don't want to overwrite what they just pushed to it. That's why they do it as a change set. And I can, when I'm ready, when I've got everything cleaned and my, what's on my local hard drive matches my, like I've just finished a feature or something and I'm all good. I'm got a clean, equal, you know, environments here Then I can deploy their change set to my org and then immediately just do a metadata poll capture that down and commit it and say, oh, that's, you know, this is John's changes. It's uh, this page layout in that field, right? And I commit that up. And then Teddy, when he's ready, can, and, and next so time he does his poll, he just pulls it down yeah. with all the other changes and, and immediately, because you have to do this immediately, right? You have to immediately deploy that to your sandbox so that your sandbox and your local file system are in sync. Which I, I love. I mean, when I, you, I love that. And, and this, it's, it is more work than. It is more work. Yeah. It, it's, but you're not asking your you know, admin or project manager, whoever else, BA who's who's helping on this project to learn Git. They're they're able to use the tools that they know, and they're getting it to you, and you know Git, and you can, and you're you're able to kind of take this, own this, and then all your other developers are don't have to worry about it. Which I think works on on a multiple levels. Whether you're you have a set team that's in the same office, or you have a very distributed team. In which case, they're just managing their Git. Yeah, this works very well in a distributed environment. Yeah. Um, but the the thing, but the the thing to complete the circle to make this all work is when we do our like say, you, I prefer in most Salesforce projects weekly deployments seem to be the best. I like to deploy into production every week, once a week, and it's a, it's a thing that happens, right? We go into QA at a cer- on a certain time of every, of and during the week, and we go to we go to production at a certain time every every week. And just whatever's, you know, when at whatever point we branch off of dev to a release branch, I mean, that's what's going to go to production, right? So whatever's done then, it's a, it's a time box. It's a fixed time box, not necessarily, we're not, we don't wait until, you know, everything's done. Now, you do have to, in order to do, I mean, this all gets into like feature enablement and things. Like if you're working, if you're mid feature and mm-hmm. you've got a lot of commits in for that feature, you need to have feature enablement designed into it so that you can keep that feature disabled or hidden from people until it's ready, right? Because it's right. going to get deployed. Yep. Your progress is going to get deployed. But this is a modern way to build software. I mean, I'm trying to build, bring, you know, the way that Netflix and all, you know, Etsy and, and Living Social and all these, all these companies that have, that are... Facebook. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the way, this is the good way to build software. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, it, it, the, the problem, one of the problems that solves in the Salesforce world is just, you know, these, it's Salesforce world is known for just disastrous deployments, right? I mean, just so much crap can go wrong. And if you let it, if you, if you wait a long time and let a bunch of changes build up, I mean, it's going to, it could take you days, especially if you have an org where just testing a de- deployment takes eight hours. Yeah. 
So I deploy every week. And they, I mean, almost always gone off of that. I can literally start the deployment and I'm, I'm out the door. I'm on my way home because we did it at the end of the week. Start the deployment. By the time I get home, it's usually done. And it's maybe one in 50 times something went wrong. It really works. I mean, and it, you know, again, there's, there's all kinds of little gotchas in the Salesforce world that you're not going to, that are, you're not going to be used to if you've come from .NET or Java or something. And that's right. fine. We, you know, we're, we're finding ways to work around those or, you know, people are creating, um, I got to say this before I forget, I mentioned it before, but check out Solenopsis. S O L E N O P S I S, which probably put a link in the show notes. It's um, it's just kind of a wrapper around the Ant migration toolkit that um, just enhances it a little bit. And I saw so I, I generally that's one of my kind of go to tools for um, both CI on the server, but also just as a local tool. I use that all the time. It, like one of the things it does is you can just say Solenopsis Git push, and it will look at just based on what Git is saying files have changed, mm-hmm. and it just deploys those to your sandbox. So how how well does your solution scale? Because I I think you know when we talk about larger projects that have a larger team, it, it's easy. It, it's not I'm saying it's easy, but there there is a chance for you to kind of come in and say, hey, we have this team. We have to we have to manage all these changes. We have to work together. Here's the best way to, that I think to do this. But what if you're just one developer, one 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 project manager, or BA, or whoever? You have one person doing config, you have one person doing development, and you're just creating a couple of triggers. Does this scale to that, or are you? do you pretty much kind of do what you I feel like I mean, if like it's a works? one and done and you're moving on from that, I probably wouldn't set all this up. But, I mean, if it's an ongoing project where stuff needs to work right, right, and mm-hmm. people need to be able to see they work right, and, you, and you know, you're, you're a developer, but you're not the end-all, be-all. There's other people that are going to be testing and validating functionality and things, I mean, and you want to make sure there's not regressions as you go on. And, and if they are, you find out about them early, right? I mean, then you need something. Yeah. And again, this to learning these tools, I mean, I mean, if you're starting from you don't know Git and you don't know the terminal and you don't know anything, I mean, yes, well, yeah, you got a lot to learn, right? But I mean, if you're a typical developer, I mean, you probably know most of these things, at least, a, at least a, well enough, right? Yeah. Um, and it'll in your first time it'll take you longer to set up, but once you set it up once, it's it's not that hard to re- just to duplicate that for other orgs or clients or however you work. Yeah, and and my piece of advice is that is even if you're a solo developer, create a local Git. Say store your oh, changes. I, don't, I never I never don't use Git because I, I, I mean so many people comment out code, comment out pages because they they might need yeah. that code later. I'm like, <laughs> well, that's what version controls for. Yeah. I'm just scared. Don't I'm gonna, do that. Yeah, I just, I just know. Get rid of it. I'm gonna. I'm always afraid. I'm gonna need to get back to a previous version of something. I mean, well, I mean, in the throes of unit testing or testing something out, and you're trying to find a bug, you know, I understand commenting some stuff out just to see what happens, to see, you know, if if it was in that area no, and the is, error stops. This is get branches are free. You just bra- create a create a branch for your little experiment. Yeah. Experiment. But I, I think I think from just from normal development, it just should be part of your DNA to kind of just. I mean. Even if you're if you're a consultant and you have multiple clients and they're not willing to pay for a Git, just start a local Git so at least you have that history. There's no paying for Git. I, my joke earlier, you know, Git is so, Git is free. It's open source. No GitHub if you're trying to. Well, if you want to uh, use Bitbucket, you get like a bunch of free. You know. Yeah, you get. I don't five, even. I don't even recommend five, GitHub. Yeah. <laughs> for many reasons, I don't I do recommend I GitHub. Pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do too, but I now use it for some things. But it's not. It's not a go-to thing for me anymore. Um. But I didn't finish earlier what I was saying. That what makes this whole thing work, especially with these admin or config sandboxes, is that when you do deploy to production, we also deploy back to the all the other sandboxes that are on that are that are not being managed directly by a developer. 
um, so that they every week also are getting the latest so that when they next week, when they're making their config changes, they're doing it based on what's ex- what's in production. You know, basically the tip of master. So do you have kind of essentially a code freeze on the no, weekend or never something? Code freezes. No code freeze. No code freezes. If you're doing code freezes, you're doing it wrong. That's also a smell, I think. That's why I said when, the, and again, there's, there's thing, there, there are ways you have to build your software to make this work, like feature enablement's one of them. But again, it, it, on, on Thursday, I branch off of dev and create a release branch. And that becomes what we do our QA on. We might commit some bug fixes to it, but no new features go on that. As soon as I do, as soon as I create that release branch, other developers, including myself, are, are, are moving on on, de, on, dev, on the dev branch, implementing new features. They're not going to go out that week because they're not on that release branch. They'll go on the release branch that comes next week. So, so having, we don't have having to, said all but, that, how yeah. do you handle destructive changes in this process? Uh, I, well, so Solenopsis is a big part of that. It, it, it has a feature uh, by which it will look at, wh- on the file system, what, it, what the org should look like. Mm-hmm. what we want the org to look like. That's one reason why it's super important to track as much metadata as you can. You want to be able to look, you and your tooling should be able to look at the file system and see what's in the org, right? That's because you want to de- then deploy that whole thing and say, I don't care what's in that org now. We know that this is what we want this org to look like. This is a build, essentially. Right. Right. Now, Salesforce deployment doesn't work that way, right? You can't, you don't, you're not just replacing one build with another. It's you are operating on an existing build, Right. right. I mean, you have a patient that's on the operating table that you're having to modify to look the way you want. You just can't roll the body off and set a new body on it, <laughs> which is what in the all traditional software development, that's what you would do. You just right. replace one build with the other. Now, you may have data migrate, and, and when I say data migrations, I mean making in, 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 in place changes to a database. Right. Not like not moving from one system to another. That's another kind of you know definition of data migration. Right. But you might have things like that, but in general, your your actual code. I mean, it's just it's a giant, you know, WAR file or it's whatever .NET uses nowadays. I don't even know what, what are they called. <laughs> okay, well, how do you package up a .NET app and just do a single thing? Is that, does don't. that exist? It's oh, an exe- it's an AC. AC. It, really? Oh, it's a, okay. It's, it's an I could see that. I could see that. But I mean, there's some nowadays. There's so many DLL dependencies. It's it's rare you just have an exe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so um, what Solon, how Solonopsis handles this is it looks at it looks at your entire build on the hard drive, and then it and then it looks at your target org, and it pulls down, does a full pull of all its metadata, and it sees what metadata is in the org and what you want the org to look like, and it will build essentially like a manifest of okay, here's all the things we need to add, here's all the things we need to change, and here are the things we need to d- delete. So and, how does that affect <laughs> picklist? Because I know picklist. Have, well, there's, there's an issue with yeah, their... the, there's all kinds of things. So you were talking about earlier, you know, we have the spreadsheet of these manual things we have to yeah. do. And the sad news is here is that that's not going to go away. It's just going to be dramatically reduced. Yeah. There are still some things like pick. If you want to change a pick list, like, you know, replace one pick list value from another, that may be something that's a manual thing. The mm-hmm. metadata API does slowly get better. They've added, and I'm still not fully up to speed on on the new. I can't remember what they call the new model, but there's basically a an asynchronous. the The way they Salesforce categorizes it is there's the asynchronous API and the synchronous API, and it's it's funny that that's the distinction they chose to use for this because it's, there's really a that's not even the main. I mean, whether I whether it happens synchronously or I have to make call. Uh, polling calls to find out the result. That's that's actually the minor difference in these things. They're actually different models. Mm. One's a one is a um, like a CRUD model, 
And, but the other one is so you, there's a lot there's a lot more updating you can do or like modifying. You can change existing instead of having to re- just replace metadata or whatever. There's, there's a lot of change you can do, and I, I'm not sure where picklists are in that. I still don't think you still don't think it's where it needs to be, but they are on some of these things. They're making some progress. Um, but yeah, Sol and Optus will will do that. One thing they added in the metadata API about a about a year ago is when it goes to delete um, delete things. So you know, like if you're using the you know, your package.xml, right? You can include alongside that a destructive changes.xml. And that's what it knows to delete. That's how you have to tell it, right? What you want to delete. And I believe it always happened. The deletes were processed before the rest of the metadata. In a lot of cases, that doesn't work. Let's say you're renaming a field or let's say you're renaming a class in Salesforce. Well, what the first thing you want to do is modify our existing classes that reference that class to not reference that class anymore. Right, you want to you want to let's say you see you rename a class from A to B, and there's things that reference A. There's other classes that reference A. Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to change the classes that reference A and, and have them reference B instead, and you have to create B. Right. Mm. Then when you're done with that, you want to delete A. Right. Well, before it always processed deletes first, and so you can't delete A because you have to remove the dependency yeah, because, first. And and this this doesn't happen atomically, like. Ideally, like your deletes, I mean, your deletes and all your additions and changes would be processed as one big atomic ball, right? Because well, you just it, roll the body off. Exactly. But it doesn't work that way. Like your, your, what ha- your package.xml, um, ha- well, so you have your destructive and you have your package.xml. Your destructive has to be able to finish and be valid before your, package, before your package.xml starts. And that right. was a huge problem. Yeah. But now that you can actually choose whether you want the deletes to happen before or after, or you can do, I believe you can do both in the same package. Hmm. You can do post. There's yeah, you can do both. The and the post. So actually, so what I, the way I have my, my my automated build setup is by default, it's all it's all post now because ninety five percent of the time that's what you want. You want your deletes to happen after your package.xml runs. So again, I mean, with with some of this third party tooling, with some of the you know s- slow, but I guess I don't know steady improvements to the metadata API. I mean, you you can approximate a somewhat decent development and deployment process. But I would definitely say if you know someone who has been down this road and who's got some experience, you know, lean on them. Um, call Jamie. Yeah. Pick, pick yeah, their brain. Because right, it's, I mean, <laughs> there's just, nailed. there's, there's a lot of ways, there's just a lot of ways to do it wrong. Don't call and, John. He'll have you modifying <laughs> spreadsheets, yeah. logging spreadsheets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Teddy, did, did that help? Did that help answer your question? Does it, does it, it get it you somewhere where you need to be? Yeah, it did. It did. I, I think for for me, uh, <clears throat> we are not going to have uh, individual sandboxes for developers. So you're going to be sitting in the same sandbox. It, it might be an issue. We you might guys use version it. control. Yeah, we do. So what happens when I check out a new branch, uh, and I and I push that to the sandbox, and it screws up all the other developers that are working on that sandbox? Um, right now, it's going to be just two branches that everybody's going to work on. So and everyone has to be on the same branch. Everybody has to be on the same branch. Yeah. Yeah, if you want, you can create your own local branch and and they just yeah. But again, yeah, if you are sitting in the same sandbox, that's going to be an issue, right? But yeah, um, so yeah, that's what I we're going to do. And for the config type of stuff, some someone is going to make sure that it is committed yeah. to to get on a daily basis. Or as is that did. someone you or someone? Uh, else? It's going to be me most probably. Yeah. I mean, you know, every every team is different. Every project's different. If your project is you know small and there's not a lot of Overlap, right? Yeah, so, there's an overlap. But if everyone's yeah. working on the same thing, I can yeah. see how you could probably get away with that yeah. and how someone could make a fairly good argument that doing what I just described is is not worth it. 
And I would, I would entertain that argument. I may not agree ultimately, but I, it's certainly an argument I would listen to. But I think, I think in, in the environment that you're specifically talking about, I think you kind of worked your way up into it, didn't you? Like it kind of started with some bad practices, but then you kind of said, this is why we're having these issues. And you use that to kind of make your case for, for doing things a certain way. Um, like, like the, the issue with profiles, you said at one point that, that you weren't tracking profiles because of a specific reason, but that's causing a lot of issues. So now you're able to kind of make the case that, Hey, this is really causing some significant issues. Let's go back to what I was saying before of actually managing these in, in the process. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is it doesn't have to be a big bang, right? You can, you can have these processes in mind. You can structure things in a way that facilitate this, but if you don't have the clout or the political capital to dictate it, you know, maybe you keep them in mind and you work your way yeah. into it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's always politics. Kind of Trojan horse yeah. it or something. Or, or just, you know, I mean, if, hopefully you have an opportunity. Because I mean, that's the reality. Not, not every, not every project goes the way you want it. Not everything is structured the way you want it. Not, you're not able to right. say, Hey, everyone's going to have their own sandbox. Yeah. Cause everyone gets scared. Not, not everyone. You're not gonna be able to say, Hey, everyone use Git, and everyone gets scared. And it's like, I don't know how to use Git. Right. Yeah, and like I said, that that's where it comes down to. Every team is different, and you know, and if you feel that things should be done a certain way, and you know, make your argument. I mean, come up, you know, but but under, you know, try to describe what the benefits are and the costs too. But and maybe and why you think the benefits might outweigh the cost for a certain method. But you know, some teams vote on things. Some teams just have a dictator. Every team is different, and every company is different. And your project may not need continuous integration. It may not need weekly deployments. It, you know, I don't know. But for most of the stuff I work on, this is this is the best way to do it. Hire Jeremy. <laughs> Should I give you details? <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure people know how to contact him if they would like to. Um, I mean, this you know these are things I I'll have Twitter conversations with people about or whatever. It's uh, always enjoy. Um, speaking of uh, deployment issues, there's a new and what's today Wednesday and. Spring 16 is rolling out this weekend, right? For most orgs. <clears throat> yeah. There's a new, there's an issue with email templates that um, winter 16 enforces m- more stricter security policies on, on email templates. And the error message you get is something like um, your template contains active content and can't be verified that it's safe. Active content. Yeah. Yeah. You can have HTML email templates. But the, yeah, like, it's in like I think it's in script template. tags in it or something. So or? that's the question because I don't think and there's even a Salesforce created like a one of these just simple knowledge solution. I guess I guess a solution is what it is that just describes it. Yeah, that's what it is, and here's what might cause it. But there's no. <laughs> this is what's like Salesforce, some marketing tools require you to kind of put a script in. Yeah. To, to track the email, and I don't see Salesforce. This is one of the things out Salesforce. You know, they've they've implemented this new security feature, but they haven't provided people who write email templates with like a good description of all the things that could cause that error message to happen. Now, one of the things that I think is one of the more common one is Microsoft, I guess people create templates with Microsoft Word or they copy and paste them out of it. I'm not sure, but all these um, office specific tags end up in your email template. Yeah. Well, a lot of them create it in Word and then they export it as HTML, copy and paste that into, because it's easier to kind of use that and create it, but yeah, you get a lot of artifacts from One that. of the most common ones, though, instead of instead of creating paragraph tags, P tags, uh, Office creates O colon oh, P. God, I hate right? those. And so those will those will trigger this. So that's yeah. the that's the hello hanging fruit. Just look at your template, and you may have to 
you may either have to look at it in the metadata. That's where I did. Or I think you can also query it. If you have a tool that used to, you can query data out of Salesforce, you can query email template and look at that as well. Yeah. Um, but look for those O colon P or, tags. Or stop using Word to create email templates and find a much better tool for it. Yeah. Well, no, but as you know, in orgs that have hundreds or thousands of email templates, you need, you know, you're not going to just recreate them all from scratch. You don't want to find out what the problem is and maybe do some kind of master place or something. Like if you find those O colon, like I did a mass replace on an org that had hundreds of templates that had this in it. Mm. And of course, again, because I've got all the metadata locally, super easy. And I just used my Solenopsis git push and three minutes later, problem solved. Because you're the man. No, just, I mean, again, if you've. I, ho- I hope your rate was pretty high for that because that just, just took you a minute and <laughs> you know. got paid nothing yes. for it. I made $1.25. <laughs> <laughs> I was able to go down and buy. If a pack it was of me, gum. I'd be combing through each one, changing it. I'd be like, "Hey, this is billable time." Yep, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but there are in another org, there are email templates that are that's that are, that are hitting this error that I cannot figure out. There mm. is not a single in you know non-validating tag. There's no scripts. Is it possible it's some kind of Unicode character or something somewhere in there that's causing an issue? I don't know because Unicode is allowed. I mean, these are UTF eight templates. So I, I, I truly don't know. I've, I've looked for like everything you could would possibly think of and, and everything that Salesforce is documented. I think the only example they gave is, is those Microsoft office tags. Mm. I think they might've mentioned something about script, but it's like, you know, if you're going to enforce this rule, give me the whole list. Cause now yeah. my, I can't deploy to any spring 16 sandbox or production org at this point. So this is a big problem for me right now. Premier support. I may be calling you. <laughs> <laughs> Ask force. Yeah. Ask force. I think they've got me on permanent block at this point. They did block you. Um, so another little interesting bit of trivia. They, they, I've run, I'm running across these things all the time, but I think I saw this one from, uh, there's a guy, Chris Peterson, who's another one of these financial force guys. I think he tweeted it. Yeah. But um, he said, um, he found that on any Apex class where you implement the queuable interface, which is a, which is a newer interface, but if you, if it implements queuable, it can't implement any other interface. <laughs> can't implement any other interface. Yeah, interesting. I know there was an issue that should be fixed with this release, where if you use the queuable interface, it couldn't chain correctly. If there was future calls enabled, some some weird situation where it would actually count against the future calls and. Yeah, some kind of error with I'm, chaining, but that I that I understand it makes sense. But like, so let's say you have um, an interface that like all of all of your classes implement. Like, let's say it's called log, you know, logs or logable or something, right? Mm-hmm. And this is like, you know, it's just a rule. Basically, all your classes implement this, or all your classes in a certain oh, Salesforce doesn't have packages in a certain pseudo quasi package implement. You know, have to implement some interface. Well, too bad. It's just can't now. And it's one of these things. It's not, this is not documented. This is not part of the language. This is some kind of restriction they've added on that they don't document that you just find out, you know, at the worst possible time. Too bad. All right. So this, does, this, didn't, would, it, would it stop would it stop you from saving that? Yeah, path? I think it won't compile. Okay, it won't compile. Yeah. Okay. But I found other weird things. You know, there's there's all kinds of, to me, they're kind of bugs, but I mean, I guess they're just, this is the way Apex works that, you know, certain if certain things aren't top level classes that can't work. You know, like I think only, only, um, only top level classes can be static, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. It's a huge limitation. That. Because um, it actually requires... Especially when, when I'm trying to create my faux namespacing. Exactly. Right. And, I mean, it, it defeats the whole purpose of that. So now you've yeah. just got a lot more top-level classes now that you're having to create. So there's just all kinds of weird things that revolve around object orientation, you know, right. object orientation features of Apex that just don't work the way like 
you would expect them to if you're used to Java, which is supposedly what Apex is based on. Certainly what it runs on. We know that. But let's see. What can't I, do that on Salesforce. Where's, the, where's the clip? I know. Um, it's perfect. I don't know. You stall while I look for it. <laughs> Sing a song or something. It's, it's up to Teddy to stall. You can't do this with Salesforce. You got it. You got it. easy. <laughs> what else, guys? Had an interesting conversation with the Heroku guys today. Oh yeah, yeah. I um, the Heroku guys. I made the mistake of recommending. Was it elastic? It, it was not elastic. <laughs> oh really? It was expensive. Oh. I, here, here's where I think Salesforce fails. Their Connect product is very attractive to customers, and they want they want to use it. Now explain what you talking about. Heroku Connect is that the I'm talking about Heroku term? Connect? It's not Lightning Connect. The thing we've all been hearing about. Wait, did it? Wait, not true. It's, it's part of the app cloud. Build your apps on Heroku, and it's connected to so, Salesforce, and you've, you're, it's a win-win situation. Non-rhetorical question. Did Heroku Connect get rebranded to Lightning Connect, or are those still different things? Still different things. See, that's weird, because based on Salesforce's pattern of branding, you would assume... Heroku Lightning you, Connect, You right? would assume <laughs> that Lightning Connect is just what Heroku Connect used to be called. Yeah. Yeah, I think Lightning Connect connects to so many other sources, right? It's yeah. it's just the general O data thing, right? O data thing, which has nothing to do with like the Lightning technology. Heroku yeah. Connect is not O data though, so so Heroku Connect is this, you know, backdoor. Uh, yeah, so let's talk about Heroku Connect. So sync, right? the way Heroku Connect works is they basically create a Postgres database on the Heroku side, and then they have some built-in tooling that will synchronize the information from Salesforce to Heroku Connect. If you're using the dev tools, from what I understand, the demo, uh, it's like it'll sync every two minutes to 60 minutes. Once you start paying, yes, you have to pay for this. And of course you for, Forget about the app cloud and everything you get with the app cloud. Like I said, you don't get it for free. That's not a bad thing, though. Let's just be honest. I mean, you should have to pay for stuff. You're but a capitalist, no, right? You're already paying for Heroku, and you're paying per transaction. Now you're paying for the integration piece the middleware piece to go to salesforce which i really think they would well people have to build and people have to maintain that connector i mean no they don't and that requires resources no, they i don't. mean technical re- no I'm, they don't what do all, you mean it's it's point and click tools all you have to do is is but someone had to build that they, someone, had, they, had, they had to pay expensive people to build i'm saying that. in the larger scheme of things if they really want to ramp up heroku and salesforce and have people really creating real apps that connect to salesforce and utilize salesforce data they would nix the cost of the Heroku Connect. Well, John, if they don't charge for things like this, then how it are they going to... absolutely gonna... my dream, and I'm dedicated <laughs> to being the fastest to $10 billion. You just that's keep the that problem. That's, that's why the problem. They're trying to get to $10 billion. They're not worried about their customers. This isn't... This is totally anti what Benioff said of, I, I, we're a stakeholder company. What, what did he say? Was it stakeholder or... Yeah. Yeah. Not shareholders, stakeholders. Yeah, not shareholders, stakeholders. We care about our customers. <laughs> Screw that. Make Heroku Connect free. <laughs> I have a customer right now who's got a very good business model. He has mobile applications running on Heroku. And now he wants to use Salesforce. He's buying Salesforce because of Heroku. Mm. Let me say that again. He's buying Salesforce because of Heroku. I don't understand that. He, he wants to start using Salesforce to manage the other side of the business, the internal side of the business. Because he's already got things running Heroku. Of course, he hears about Salesforce because Salesforce owns Heroku. And he's like, this would be great. Salesforce offers these things. My applications are running here. They're not running on Salesforce. Right. They're not Salesforce SDK apps. They're Heroku real-world mobile apps running, and they're doing that great. Doesn't, that doesn't mean they're not a good candidate for running Salesforce just for front-of-house operations, though. 
No, I'm, what I'm saying is Heroku was the entry point to it. And now the hurdle is connecting to Salesforce okay. and orchestrating that. Yeah. Now it would be very simple for him to use Heroku Connect. Aside okay. from the cost. What is the cost? Well, they don't publish the cost. So it's really hard for me to say <laughs> what you're going to pay for it. But my understanding Call is... Call your salesperson. <laughs> well, be, uh, it depends on your negotiating skills. Everything price-wise with Salesforce depends on oh, yeah. your negotiating it skills. Does. Exactly. They're the used car salesman of the day. <laughs> well, that's why I, that's why I really don't consider Salesforce true cloud because true cloud you can just go put it, put in your credit card number and there's yeah. the menu and you can cancel whenever you want with yeah. no. It's it's cloud supposed to be pay I, for I, what I'm you pay use. Ten cents per transaction, Wait, sure. Isn't cloud supposed to be pay for what you use and only what you use and you can cancel at any point? That's the cloud we want to believe in. Well, that's that's what most people think. To most people, that's what cloud is. But Salesforce, I mean, Salesforce is very much the, when, you know, they, they, but they've embraced this enterprise software thing. I mean, was, was Salesforce the real cloud? Is Salesforce the false cloud? Who's Listen, the real they, cloud and who's the they false act, cloud? They act far more Marketing like a, has muddled that water. They, I don't know who the real cloud they is They act anymore. far more like a traditional enterprise software company than they do a cloud, a young cloud company. Yeah. Which is fine. I mean, whatever. They got to get to $10 billion. And at some point, they need to be profitable. Wow. I mean, if they don't care about their profits in order to get to $10 million, they sure as hell don't care about the fact that you're going to have to pay a little bit for your Heroku Connect. Well, Shut it, up and pay. If if their <laughs> if if their their team or whatever whatever they use to evaluate how products are doing, if if the Connect product is on the downtrend and they're not seeing enough uptick, it's because it's too damn expensive. Customer, we are out there recommending it. Those of us in the community are saying, "Hey, Salesforce has this thing where and you can see, connect I your database." I don't recommend it because I think I, that, I think the underlying technology is not up to up to snuff. Well, yeah, it's I, not, that, that it's not transaction based. Th- that it's, a, aside. it's a syncing algorithm. No, I mean that aside, it solves a very common real world problem in terms of Connect. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking Heroku Connect. We'll talk Salesforce Connect, Lightning Connect. The ability to kind of consume information, treat it like normal Salesforce data, but it not exist in Salesforce is a big deal. It is. You just you, if you're going to use that, to report you, on it no, no. on your legacy or or whatever your back end um, master data system and hook that up to Salesforce and it's not really in Salesforce but your users can use it, report on it, do anything they need to do it and you can manage that. That is huge. And I can understand why Salesforce thinks this is huge. You're going to pay for this huge thing. But honestly, I think I think as a whole the ecosystem and customers would embrace the product more if this was far less expensive. Yeah. Every every customer I've recommended the, Connect to has chosen not to do it simply because yeah. it costs too much. Well, maybe they don't want people to use it. Maybe they're willing, they, they're maybe, willing to take the double price of me building an integration that one-time hit over the annual fee of Connect. I might have to start the music and play you off, man. That's all I have. It's the only music I've got. It's playing <laughs> you off. That's my cue to, to yes. that's like the Oscar cue or whatever, where a, they try to kick you off stage. I'll just do this. <laughs> <laughs> maybe they don't, as with the first year of Wave, maybe the first two years of Wave, they really don't want people to use this because they know it causes problems. I'm telling you, if you have contentious data, meaning if you've got significant changes going on on the Salesforce side and the Heroku side, you're going to, it's a syncing algorithm. Everyone remembers probably syncing their phones with Outlook or whatever. This is the similar type of thing, right? It's, it doesn't scale well to contentious situations. So they're saying they priced it because they didn't build it well enough? 
I don't know. I mean, I've never used it, so I can only speak from just what I've been told about it. But it is not. It is. That was my original question. Was wait a minute. This is if this happens in transactions. This is awesome. If this is like you know XA or whatever you know like two phase commit transactions, this is a great solution. But they didn't do that because I think that was that from a technology perspective was too expensive. I don't think Salesforce wanted to leave, and this they it might be the right decision. Because that you have to leave transactions transactions open for much longer, and they may not wanted to do that, and there's probably good reasons why. But if, so if you're not going to do two phase commit, then you th- then you're not doing transactions, which means that I can change record A on Salesforce, and you can change record A Heroku at the same time, and then when that sync thing runs, they're going to say, "Oh, this changed both places. Can I figure out how to merge these?" Okay, and so now this algorithm is going to decide how to merge these two records for you. Are you comfortable with this? Well, maybe you are. If it's not critical data, if it's not that big of a deal, if it's not like something super important, like, I don't know, financial transactions or something like that, maybe so. Yeah. But if it is important, you probably don't want this algorithm making those decisions for you. Um, and in some cases, if it can't, like say you change the same value, the same field, then you're going to get a merge conflict and you'll probably get some email or whatever that you have to then now go in and resolve some kind of merge conflict. And it's just, I don't know. This is There, there is tooling built in for merge conflicts. Yeah. And, and, and you know- Well, there has to be. Price aside, Heroku Connect might not even be the right solution for this product because there are a number of limitations. Yes, it's syncing this this and Postgres database back and forth, but it's not it's not enforcing your data integrity rules that you built in Salesforce. So if you have a validation rule that says this field has to be so long or it has to be this format or whatever you implemented. So you're saying that this Heroku Connect can bypass your rules? It wouldn't know. Or does it get tries, rejected? Okay. It wouldn't know. You, you can insert into the Postgres database, and it looks it's fine. Right. It's sitting there. But at the point it goes to actually sync that information to Salesforce, that's when it will, will run across your data integrity rules or and, whatever other rule okay. you have. And you'll get, a, you'll get a sync conflict? You'll get a sync okay. conflict. Well, that's, that's actually preferable to it, just allowing bad data to go in. So that's... But, but what yeah, I'm saying is, is, is it's, it's an ongoing management of someone to kind of go, go in and monitor these transactions and make sure they're they're going through correctly you'll be you'll be able to simply kind of correct the issue or whatever you need to do and then the next sync it'll go through and process it i think it is much easier just to build your own integration <laughs> through the and that, that's what yeah. end up what might end up be hap what might net it end up needing to happen because it's not a true synchronization it's not a say. true pass huh easy for you to say <laughs> it wasn't easy for me to say <laughs> Because there's other issues involved. But there's, you're going to have the same problems that Heroku Connect has. If if the record changed in both places at the same time, you're, you're going to have to... I mean, maybe you know whether you want it just one system to obliterate the other if, if there's a sync conflict, but Heroku Connect is probably not going to, unless you can configure you'll, you'll, those rules. You'll have less of those issues because, it, I mean, it should be transactional. I mean, at one point, Salesforce is going to decide which one wins, and, and it's very, very, very extremely rare that you'll get a deadlock issue. I've run into it maybe twice in the 10 years. And what... What system are you talking about? Where in Salesforce, where where you actually have a deadlock conflict? That's because Salesforce does a damn good job of keeping transactions very short. That's yeah. why they don't allow you to do a thousand queries in a transaction, right? Maybe. That's why they don't allow you to do callouts after you've done DML. So, right? in terms of the API, you get the advantages of your data integrity rules being applied real time because you you can try to insert it and get the error back. That something happened, yeah. and so your your application or whatever you're consuming that's you know sitting on top of Salesforce can have access to that. The other thing is we're going to have to probably do API anyways because Heroku Connect doesn't doesn't have the the metadata API. So there's no access to the metadata. So if you want right. to have the same pickless value in Salesforce that you do on your mobile app, you're still going to have to query the API to get that information. Yeah. So there's no value add there. And in terms of cost of it, it might be 
much more, I don't know, pragmatic or whatever the word is to, to actually just go the API route because at that point we're consuming the API anyway, so we have to build that infrastructure anyways into the applications or, or, or anything else. I mean, one thing that might tip it in Heroku's favor is, or Heroku Connect is that I believe they tried to position those databases as close to the Salesforce's data center as possible or have like a super fast um, path between them so that it would minimize conflicts much more than you'd be able to, you know, calling an API from across the internet. Yeah, but I, I think I think one of the other issues is that Heroku is still very much a separate company. And 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 I got kind of wind of that during this call where I was able to ask some questions to one of their solution engineers. Um because I was asking questions that the sales rep couldn't answer. So he brought in a solution engineer for me, which was really great. He he came on immediately. So from a support standpoint, that was really awesome. But he did kind of say in his caveat that when I was talking about limitations and things like that, he did say that we work really close with those Salesforce guys that, that run the API. So they, they yeah. know that we're going to do things in a, in a best practice way. It wasn't like we're the same company. Things are really close. He, he didn't really no. say it that way. He said it like, you know, we know those guys. <laughs> they've worked with us. We've worked with them to make sure that what we're doing is – is best practice, and that's why you don't have any limits. I mean, Heroku is still a separate company. The service itself is very distinct from Salesforce. It's you know, it runs on it runs on Amazon Web Services, right? And and it's no secret there's a still a big I think culture difference between Heroku and Salesforce. So they're not. It's not going to be like they're the same company because they're they're really not for all intensive purposes. <laughs> intensive. <laughs> See what I deal with. <clears throat> I'm looking at Teddy. Well, our short recording has turned into one hour and 30 minutes. We just, we just can't yeah. do it. Any final? Well, Teddy, that was an awesome question. I'm glad we were a, able yeah. to answer it and hopefully help you. <laughs> I, I enjoyed this so much that maybe we should ask people if, if you have a question. topic or a question, a question that you want us to cover. <laughs> and if you're in the Dallas area, come join us. We'll put you on. Hmm. Jeremy's John's me the look awfully like, welcoming. Look, Jeremy, Jeremy's <clears throat> giving me the look like I just invited a bunch of strangers into our home. And, if you make it past our proprietary screening process. <laughs> <laughs> or if you just have a question, just ping us directly on Twitter. Yeah. Do our best we do, we need to, I think we need to get Or if you just want to test how smart we really think we are. I'd, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll probably fail that test. but <laughs> Yeah, I think we should set up an email address because we, we just don't get a ton of feedback. And I would like to get more feedback because I know I know what the numbers are. We have a lot of listeners, but we just, you know, we don't get a lot of feedback. We need to encourage feedback. How about info at good days? What's our URL? Gooddaysirpodcast.com. Okay. Info at gooddaysirpodcast.com. Or just set it. Can, you I think can, we have that. Can't already. you set it up so that any email to that domain just goes to us? Yes. Okay. So, yeah, email us questions or, or tweet. Tweeting is good too. Good day, sir. PDCST, right? Yeah. Ask us questions. Give us feedback. Let us know we're a bunch of jerks, just blowhards. That's fine, too. <laughs> and, Teddy, is there anything you want the world to know about you? Not much. Not much. Can, are you, uh, you know, can, <laughs> is there anything you want to promote or a URL or can people hire you or? Yeah, I'm open for a hire. What's your, okay. So do you, how do, what's the best way to contact you? Just call me. <laughs> Should we include your phone number in the show notes? <laughs> <laughs> and we totally can. Or email or, or, yeah. or even just Twitter I, I, handle. Yeah, but, I, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, I, we'll, I will link to his LinkedIn in the show notes. How about that? Yeah. That works. 
And to that, I say, good day, sir. Good day, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Go get your badges. Badges? We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges.